Who the bloody hell's that? Morning, Ange. Oh, Anthony. How are we? I'm really well. How are you? <laughs> Come on in. I will do. Thank you. Did that sound staged? Just a little. No, it's fine. fine. Yeah. I'm going to embrace the whole lounge pant thing next time. I'm going to put my University of New Hampshire lounge pants on. You should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to chapter 12 of the Corona Diaries. Um, Mr. Steve Hogarth uh, is looking as gorgeous as ever on screen. Um, beautifully turned out bastard. this morning, H. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And I've, I've had the rest of my dodgy tooth pulled out now, so um, I'm, I'm looking particularly glamorous. In fact, there was a woman who used to live up the street in Lake Keen Road when I was growing up uh, in the, on the council estate who didn't really wash much and was a bit overweight. And I, I caught myself in the mirror this morning and I was a ringer for her, frankly. <laughs> okay. Did pu- purple slippers with furry bits on them or, you know? <laughs> Curlers. Curlers. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I could actually, I could see you in curlers. Yeah. Um, that's the look you ought to don at some point. Yes, and and a hairnet. And a hairnet. Yeah, I'll, yes. I'll go for that on the next tour. Okay. You don't know what she was called, do you, this woman? No, and if I did, I wouldn't, I wouldn't insult her wouldn't by share naming it. her. I think she might have been called McGarry. The McGarrys. There was a family. They might have been called the McGarrys down Lake Keen Road, and they were really properly rough. And you know, you used to cross the road when you went past in case you got sucked in. Um, there was a couple of places like that in Insect. There was a place called Warren Close, which I'm sure is still there. I don't know if it's still a no-go area, but but when I was a kid, you just didn't you didn't go to Warren Close if you wanted to keep your teeth and not get the shit kicked out of you uh that was a no-go area it took a very uh, it took a very reckless heart to cross warren close right um so uh there we are if, if you still live in doncaster and you're listening I, I wouldn't mind an update on warren close right. i'm sure i went to school with somebody called warren close but <laughs> No, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's true or not. But <laughs> what was he like? <laughs> was he was he open to random acts of violence, or was he all right? No, he was. He was. My, my youth doesn't seem to be anything like yours. People didn't seem to <laughs> no. hone in on me just Funny to that. just to administer a beating. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, I don't. I, in a fairly inconsequential youth compared with you, but uh, I, as soon as you said the McGarrys, I thought, "Oh wait, hang on, hang on. These 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 are the local warlords. It just sound like the McGarrys of Doncaster." Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know if there were McGarrys to be fair, but that that uh, name did pop into my head for whatever reason. Right. Okay. Right. Fine. Well, we better we better stop there because the power of social media means that both of us might get tracked down by either Warren or the McGarrys, and we don't we don't want that to. We don't to want another. Don't want another blinking complaint like I got from Doris from the Violet Hour, do we? Um, I want to try and cut down on them. 
Uh, yeah, well, yes and no. We see, One of us seems to be apologising most weeks for something that we've done or said. Uh, though, to be fair, you seems you've you've excelled this week. But we'll come to we'll come to. I'll tell you what. Let's just talk about Doris now. Um, so we talked a little bit about the Violet Tower, didn't we? And we and you you regaled a great story, uh, which actually now turns out was largely false. Well, you should never let, as they say, you should never let the fact get in the way of a good story. And, and I don't think I did in that instance. I, I had said that we had to replace a hotel carpet because it was blood stained and destroyed, which is true. And then I'd gone on to say it was a consequence of Doris having having a fight with her, her boyfriend. And um, she was mortified. I didn't. Re- you, you say this stuff not realizing anyone's ever going to hear it. <laughs> and she uh, she heard it. I'm flattered she's been listening. To be honest, but she heard it and said, "Hang on a minute." You know, the guitar. A the guitarist wasn't my boyfriend. It was another bloke, uh, which was something I'd got confused about. And then B, we hadn't had a fight in the hotel room. We, we'd had a bit of an alter, altercation of words and, and left early. Um, and by the time we got back to our, our own hotel, we, um, we'd made up anyway. So it wasn't a very big deal. So uh, whoever spilt blood on that carpet wasn't me. So I thought, oh, Christ, I'd better put the word, I'd better put the record straight Um that uh, Doris is in fact rather less rock and roll than, uh, than than the picture I painted of her. Whether that's good or bad, um, you can be the judge. But uh, I've got to apologise to Doris and and just make it crystal clear that what I said in the other podcast was more or less bollocks. <laughs> okay, um... <laughs> and I've been making I've been making similar apologies my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, just for the, just to be clear, just to be clear, and and it's that particular story that was bollocks, and you're standing by everything else. At which what? point, the floodgates will now open to all the other bits that we've got wrong in the previous eleven episodes. I stand by replacing the carpet. That definitely happened. That definitely and, happened. And I also stand by me going to bed earlier, not witnessing any of it, which definitely happened, which yeah. probably explains why my recollections are so mixed up. Yeah, yeah. So apologies to Doris and... Um, well, and someone ne- definitely was gaffer-taped into a chair and left in the road, which is insane. And our sound man definitely mashed all his fingers on a cable drum. Yes. So those and, bits and are was- true. And there was blood on the carpet. There was most definitely blood on the carpet. It probably belonged to one of our crew who was very quick to shift the blame onto the poor opening act. Standard crew uh, procedure. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> blame the support and, band. <laughs> and, and we'll leave it there. I've got a little message. Uh, I've got a very little message for uh, Jen Phillips, who we have mentioned before, because Jen uh, tried to get in, involved in the whole debate about how you pronounce... Uh, um, do we? Do we? The legendary Dewey. and yes, um, because she was expecting a birthday card, I think, last week, and hasn't have hasn't had one. And she contacted mm. me to say, "Did I not put my details into Patreon correctly?" Uh, which mm. you did, Jen. You did that very well. Um, unfortunately, what we don't appear to be able to reconcile is the fact that you've ever told us it was going to be your birthday. So that might be the slight flaw. 
It might be the slight flaw in the whole process, but we're not going to claim that it's not us that have cocked up because it could be. But as it stands, we can't find any record of your birthday. So uh, I think we should say happy birthday, happy belated birthday to Jen. Yes, happy birthday, Jen. And if you do message me your birthday, then I can put it in my enormous database. Having said that, if anyone else is listening who has already messaged me their birthday, please don't message me it again because I'll have 200 emails to wade through uh, in in the morning. Um, like I did last time, I asked anyone who hadn't sent me their birthday to send me their birthday so just to repeat if you have sent me your birthday already by message then don't send me it again because i've got it and if you haven't then do and happy belated birthday to jen and jen we will get a card to you uh, as soon as we resolve this little bit and I'll, I'll contact you on facebook after this and we'll get that one resolved i've also uh, is- i've also got jen i've also got your name in my database uh, as Virginia Morris. So it says Jen Phillips at one end, and at the other end it says Virginia Morris. Is that because I'm insane or, or because you are? Uh, do clear that one up as well. And if you're called Virginia Morris and you're listening and you think that we've just uh, scuppered you as far as GDPR, that was purely unintentional, and please excuse that. Right. Yes. I think we're Unless good now. I think, she, I think we're she good. She sounds think... like she's part of the arts and crafts mu- mu- movement, doesn't she, Virginia mm-hmm. Morris? That's her, Well, I... Yeah. I just keep thinking Roxy Music, actually. Oh, do uh, you? Oh, no, I've yeah. got a kind of pre-Raphaelite tragic painting, you know. Um, right. You know, knocking one of those off tragically. when You know, a kind of morphine-induced right. <laughs> woman can, lying in a lake. That's what I've can, got. Can you, can you knock one off tragically? That seems like a, somehow it's like a weird. You either tragically produce or you knock one off. I don't know if if or even out. Do you knock off or knock out? I suppose you can do both actually. Oh, you can definitely do both, and I have. Right. <laughs> a fact I was in little doubt of. Um, <laughs> so yes, so, so we talked about Jen. That's good. We talked about do we polarise to Doris. That's also good. Um, one quick thing. Um, because we seem to be drawing together loads of little strands today. Um, we'd, Ian, Ian from Manchester, Ian Maidley, the legend that is Ian Maidley, who we keep mentioning, we need to stop because he's getting far too much in terms of coverage. Uh, well, he deserves so. it. The amount of time he's spent stood in the rain waiting for us, nothing's good enough for him, frankly, as far as I'm concerned. But well, that, there we have it, and there we have it. So all you need to do, Ian, is move to a you know a, a city with a better climate, really. Um, <laughs> It'll be a start, yeah. Um, Ian met, told us about the fact there were numerous purple podcasts, if you remember, and we got into a conversation about Susie Dent, the lovely Susie Dent. Um, but it turns out, because he came back and told me, that actually what he'd sent me wasn't just a link to their podcast, Something Rhymes With Purple. It was actually a link to the fact there are literally hundreds of podcasts that reference purple. And I mean hundreds. Oh. So mm. there are hundreds of the buggers out there. So at some point, I'll ping you the list over. Um, I mean, clearly, we're as purpleness goes, we we occupy a position. But um, yeah, there are, there really are. It really is a thing. Oh, maybe we should um, go mauve or something. Um, mauve. See, I think I'd say mauve rather than mauve. Oh, mauve yeah. sounds too much like Maud, which could have been the name of that person that used to wander around intake. Actually, all right, Maud. Yeah, Maud McGarry. Yeah, Maud McGarry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With a shotgun, with a shotgun in her apron. Oh God! It turns out all of that's true. We're really, sawn off. <laughs> I mean, obviously, sawn off. Um, 
<laughs> Though all the shotguns are available. Um, more, right. Move and move. Well, that, move there we go. We'll have to clear that up. Um, let's, let's get on to a couple of questions. Um, Ricky McClure... Uh, yeah, that's how I pronounce it. Uh, contacted you and contacted Ricky me. Contacted me through LinkedIn, which which seemed a bit a bit random, but it was lovely to hear from you, Ricky. And mm, he was asking questions about how things like radio play and things like sales then convert into um, where you go and where you actually go and play as a band. And what got him started was this whole thing of when you were saying that uh, the Europeans had a lot of radio play in in uh, the West Coast. And were promptly whisked off to the, to the west coast. So he yeah. was trying to work out what the relationship is between radio play in a place and sales in a place, and whether you could make money in a place. And also yeah. questioning why the band, had, for argument's sake, you know, never done well in um, you know places like Australia. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've uh, been in the music business now for forty five years, if you include kind of playing in dodgy working men's clubs and what have you. And it is one of the very few businesses that no matter how much time you spend in it, um, you're really none the wiser. It's a weird business. I mean, if I was in any other line of work, then after 45 years, I'd know it inside out and I'd know how it worked. But the music business is just a strange, strange business and seems to have as much to do with chance and fate um, as 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 any kind of mechanism. So first of all, I would say that, yes, if you're on telly, um, you will see interest in what you do go up. Having said that, I'm really in a one of the few bands, <laughs> we've often joked privately, uh, we're one of the few bands who did Top of the Pops and our record went down in the chart <laughs> the following week. Um, so we tend to buck the trend a little bit, um, and, and as, which leads me back to what I said at the beginning, is that the, the, there's nothing seems to make any sense in the music business. First of all, um, in theory, you know, the more radio play you get, the, the, the more exposure you obviously get, the more people are likely to, to, to listen to it and turn on to it, and then you'll see your concert ticket sales go up. Um, for instance, in we've always done very well in Holland, where I think the band used to get rather more airplay than you know other parts of Europe. We've always done very well in Mexico, and that's almost entirely down to you know one rock radio station that used to play the band long after all the pop stations had stopped playing us. Um, in Santiago, Chile, there's a great radio station called Radio Futuro, uh, which has managed to resist that unseen hand of fate that kills any music station that's interested in music in, in, in favour of pop stations um, that, that, that are more or less completely bound and tied up by major labels and the music business. Um so there's, the, you know, the the way media tends to work is it is is very very much to do with popular culture, uh, and popular culture tends to be rigged 
to some extent by major labels. Um, just about every radio station on earth, um, you know, is 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 open to massive influence by big money and that either happens by somebody coming along saying you know please play this on your radio station and oh by the way here's a here's here's an envelope full of cash um or it 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 happens by a mechanism whereby you know an independent radio station um someone will approach it and say okay we we will place half a million quids worth of advertising on your network over the next year um you know but you need to play this and can you play this and can you have a sympathetic ear to this now the bbc is famously not corrupt but having said that um the only way you can even approach the BBC radio, for instance, or television, is via independent promotions men. And there's just a handful of those that are allowed through the door. And in order to get an independent promotions man through the door to the Beeb with your record, you have to pay these guys quite a healthy amount of money. Um, this can be thousands. And it can be thousands a month uh, because a lot of them lie, you know, that rather than have a one-off payment to work your record, they, they go, well, you know, let's say for the next four months it's going to cost X and we will work your record and we will take it into the BBC because we can get in there and we know the people and we have dinner with some of the producers and we're mates and this is why we're going to charge you an arm, arm and a leg. And you can pay that money and even having paid it and sent them in there, they can still come back to you and go, oh, they didn't like the record. So it's all very nebulous how you, how you get exposure on radio or TV. Once in a blue moon, there's a situation like what happened with the Europeans where this one DJ, um, I can't remember his name now, but he was at KROQ in L.A., and he heard the animal song and decided it was the coolest thing and he was going to play the hell out of it. And KROQ at that time was the cool radio station as well. So all the cool kids who were listening to KROQ were suddenly hearing our record umpteen times a day. To my knowledge, I don't think that had anything to do with money changing hands. It was just a, a DJ who, who got genuinely excited by the record and wanted to play it. But if, for instance... Ken Bruce over at Radio 2 or, or whoever at Radio 1 um, heard a record tomorrow that blew their socks off and they said, this is the best record I've ever heard, they wouldn't play it because they're not allowed to play it because they have to choose from a playlist which is handed to them uh, from above, which kind of turns the DJs effectively into talking heads who, who, who are just there to introduce records and do as they're told. It has nothing to do with what they're personally excited by. So it's a strange old business. And the, the, the radio stations who are allowed to play what genuinely turns them on uh, are very few and far between anymore in the world. Um, so it would be simple for me to say, and those are the ones that play us, um, I don't know that that's even true. But... But people who have 
the freedom to play what they want on radio or or to expose what they want on television uh, are few and far between. And, of course, the ones that do still need to be exposed to your music in the first place. And if the only, if the only people who can get through the door to play them anything are, are, are all very expensive independent promotions companies, then you can kind of see how tied up in money the whole thing is. Um, and because it's all tied up in money, it makes it very hard for, for A, new artists to break through unless they've got a deal and, you know, and a bit big money behind them, or old artists, mature artists, whatever you want to call it, like us, um, to um, to really lobby to get airplay, and for that reason, the only the only you know here comes Kaylee one more time, and and it's it's like it's like we've never written another song since. Um, as for royalties, and the way that ba- a band actually makes a living, uh, a band like ours, we get we get royalties from the the songs that we've written. You get songwriting royalties, and um a, a a body called PRS the performing rights society in the UK collects that money and distributes it um nobody really knows how much money they collect you know you, you it's very hard to scrutinize the nuts and bolts of that um but the money comes in, the money gets distributed. I dare say a certain amount of money comes in that never gets distributed um, for whatever reason and either sits in their bank forever or or goes to fuel up their their cars. Because all these organi- a lot of these organisations are called non-profit organisations. So they basically only exist to collect the money and distribute it. But the fact is that the, the executives... Uh, and the CEOs of these companies, uh, you know, pick up very fat salaries and uh, put lots of petrol in their very fine limousines um, off the top of that. And, uh, of course, they're not making a profit because that's an operating cost, but they're doing all right. Um, am I starting to sound cynical? But anyway, <laughs> I'm old enough to have become cynical. Well, I think the thing with PRS is PRS collect from anybody, any public space, don't they? That has a that, that wants to switch on the television or switch on the radio or play no, that's background music. P- that's PPL. They're two oh, is that PPL? Things, yeah. PPL are the people who who you, you who say a pub has got to pay in order to play right. music. Of course, PPL never really find out which music those pubs are playing. So. So there could be anything from the Rolling Stones to Ultravox to, you know, PJ Harvey or, or Marillion. Um, they don't know. And so distributing that money is, is a really dark art. And I think they've got algorithms. And, of course, I think they give more to Bruce Springsteen than, than they give to some band that's just been signed because they, they reason that, that he's probably getting played more in the pub. But there's no accuracy in how that money is distributed. PRS is to do with songwriting and also um, 
a distribution that comes from airplay. So if, if Radio 1 plays your record, they have to pay, I can't remember what it is, but it's quite a lot of money, it's something like 200 quid to PRS for that one play. And then the, that money is distributed to the, the people who wrote the song. So there's a lot of money to be made in songwriting, provided that your stuff is being aired on national radio. Um, that's how that works. Uh, and then, of course, there, there, there are a royal, there's what they call recording royalties, which are payable by the record labels uh, to an artist every time one of their records is sold. Now that uh, record sales have fallen off a cliff, and the and and the the, the the public are listening to their music by streaming it through platforms like Apple Music and Spotify, there is still a royalty payable from from that, but it's an absolute fraction of what it used to be. So so typically, you know, if if somebody if Spotify streams one of our songs, I think we receive a fraction of a fraction of a penny for that. So if you've had like a thousand streams, I think that's worth about 2p, um, which is not really a lot of money to live off if you're in a band of five people. So effectively, apart from the real megastars who are being streamed by the millions upon millions upon millions daily, uh, everybody else is receiving next to bugger all now for their recorded work. And that has been a gold rush that has, has happened, you know, in the last three or four years that has denied artists millions upon millions of pounds, which if it had happened in any other business, you know, would be in the high court. People would be going to jail for it. But in the music business, oh, well, they're just artists, aren't they? Never mind. Uh, you're just kind of left to it. And so, of course, now artists that used to make quite quite a good living out of their recorded work have to tour because that's the only other way that they can receive a, a half-decent income and pay their mortgages and, and feed their families. So artists are now touring. You know, it's no surprise that over the last five years the, the, the live the live aspect of the industry has exploded. Um, but then here comes COVID and that's dead. So artists at the moment are, a lot of artists are living on fresh air. Mm. It's funny because I do another podcast um, called 942, which is with a, a guy who runs a show called The Guitar Show. And we've interviewed quite a few artists through lockdown and the breadth of artists who are struggling. So we've spoken to people like Glenn Matlock, who was one of the original Sex Pistols. We hmm. spoke to Earl Slick, who was Bowie's guitarist. Yeah. Spoken to um, you know people from the brand new Heavies, people uh, from a variety of bands. Um, and, and they are, you know, they're, they're literally, their whole world has caved in. Yeah, because every everybody's now got a model that revolves around you know, and by playing live, it can be a gig or it can be playing at something like a you know like a show. So you'd go and do a guest spot at a show. Well, there's plenty of ways you can go out and perform that doesn't necessarily isn't a formal gig, but is still revenue generating. Hmm. And and these guys are just just literally sat at home with no idea when when you know they they they'll be able to effectively earn any cash again. 
Yeah, and, and all the road crew as well are in yeah. such deep shit because their, you know, their income's gone. I mean, just completely gone. So, and, and there's no sign of that really getting going and coming back in any meaningful way until there's a vaccine, until people comfortably feel that they can stand shoulder to shoulder in a room, you know, with another 2,000 or 10,000 people, you know, and, and people aren't going to be comfortable in doing that, irrespective of government directives, um, until there's a vaccine and, you know, you, you think, well, I can go to this gig and it ain't going to kill me. Yeah. Uh, you know, or, or if it doesn't kill me, I'm not going to take it home and kill my old man. So so those live music's been decimated by this, as I'm sure you all know, but perhaps you don't realise that for a lot of artists it, it, it's really the only game in town in terms of making a living because the streaming platforms aren't paying as much at all compared to what we used to earn in the old days of selling CDs. I mean, fortunately for Marillion, we're... we're Weirdly, we still sell a lot of CDs because, you know, as Lucy keeps pointing out to us, for whatever reason, our fans like physical stuff. They like they like to hold our stuff in their hands. And I'm sure we are being streamed, of course, but all our kind of most faithful fans will still go out and buy our, our, our CDs and our hard, hard copies of what we do and our vinyls and whatnot. And so it hasn't hit us quite as hard as it otherwise might have done, you know. Obviously, and and we've also been lucky that we'd we'd put this year aside to make a record, and so we hadn't got a lot of touring booked in. We hadn't got a lot of live shows booked in. Um, however, next spring is um, convention year for us, and we've had to make the painful decision to move all that back another year to 2022. Um, that's, you know, that, that will cost us an awful lot of money. Um, but, I mean, it hasn't bitten yet, but I, I think we'll feel it next year. Mm. It's, it's funny because, well, it's not funny at all, but, um, you know, everybody thought that things like Spotify would... And, and streaming and people being directly paid when their when you know their material was was played would reset, but of course it's not. And yet again, the industry, you know, it's all these things which come about, which are supposed to then get the revenue from the artist, effectively make it a lot closer to the people who are consuming the material. And it seems to be another layer put in the way, which is which is just penalising artists yet again. I mean, you're right about you know I've got all the albums up on the shelf. So I will go out and I'll always buy the, the, the you know the the physical product, um, but then I still stream the stuff. I'll still sit and listen to you know Marillion on Spotify, but I've bought the album anyway. Yeah, so yeah, it's there. So you know, and and maybe from my streams that you know that there's there's a there there is a couple of pens coming in your direction. So maybe you could have a you know a slight hubba bubba per but, year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, but at least but at least I've bought the album as well. But then I think about a lot of other artists that I don't do that with. And actually, the, the message here probably is: if you can afford to support the artist directly, and there's a route to do that, which which Marillion have, 
maybe you know maybe that's a way you can help because then the money is directly going to the artist. So if you can buy the material from the artist, then you then you should. Yeah, that's um, true of any artist. I mean, a, 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 we're we're very lucky, but a, a lot of artists are in a, a damn sight less than we do. We're not millionaires, don't get me wrong, but we you know, but we get by all right. We probably earn as much as doctors or something. You know, yeah. we don't earn as much as Robert Plant once did, or, or you know, um, <laughs> thinking a lull cream actually, but. Um, I, got, I sent a, I sent an email out yesterday to the Trevor Horn band just sending them all a bit of love because I hadn't spoke to any of them since the end of last year and I sent a blanket e- email out just sending them a sending them some love and it's, I hope you're all right and keeping safe in in sitting in your gardens of various sizes and Lol replied and just said uh <laughs> he said he said here I am wasting away in abject luxury and I think I'm only going to be able to stand this for another 20 or 30 years. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, I just want to say how much I'm missing you all. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, abject, so, you know, some of my peers are wasting away in abject luxury. But, but, I, but I think a lot of, I think an awful lot of artists are really struggling. And, and if you can support them directly, even lol, then do so because he's worth it. But maybe put Lol a bit further down your list. <laughs> <laughs> He's worth it, honestly. I mean, some of that 10cc stuff is amazing. Yeah, oh, absolutely superb. Um, right, well, we're he, grief. We've been chatting for nearly half an hour. We'll we'll sort of skew into a bit of diary. Um, okay, then. which I believe is is a few more bits of Holiday and Eden dates, and I think you end up heading home for a few days. Um, and had a, had a little bit of a respite, but then I've got a sneaking suspicion you might also have an encounter with Bonnie Tyler. Um, oh, so that, yes. that, that, that those things are all those things are all coming. So, I saw uh, I saw Ringo in the airport as well, did and you? I'd completely forgotten about that till I till I was you know till I was reading. Yeah, didn't if if you'd have asked me in a court of law, Steve Hogarth, hand on the Bible. Have you ever seen Ringo Starr? I just said no, never. But apparently, I have. <laughs> right, right. Ringo's getting quite a lot of mentions, actually. We think we mentioned Ringo before, didn't we? <laughs> well, uh, only be, yeah, because he asked because he, he asked all his fans with love to leave him alone. Didn't to he? leave him alone. Stop writing to him. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. funny. The, the Brexit supporting Ringo Starr. Not that we're going <laughs> to cast any aspersions on Ringo, um, even though. He probably wasn't the best drum in the Beatles. So, um, well, you said it first. Well, I think Paul McCartney said it first. Well, I just said that it was a, what was it? A a story, wasn't it? It was just a story that went around. But, I mean, what would they have been without him? I mean, he played exactly the right thing on all of those records at exactly the right time. And to be fair, as a drummer, that's what you want. The right thing at the right time. In that's the right all time, you even. want. That's all you want. You don't you want, want them showing off all the way through something. No, no. Oh, God, unless I don't care Stuart, how many toms you've got. Unless there's Stuart Copeland, who used to show off to great effect within the police, and it worked. Yeah, but he didn't go mad on toms, did he? He didn't feel the need to have a drum kit that covered half an acre. No, he was he was very much an exponent of the closed hi-hat and the splash cymbal. Which was great, you know, because nobody had ever really approached Phil's with, with in that way before. I mean, he rewrote the book. Uh, massive respect for Stuart Copeland. Mm. Mm. 
And a small insight there into his work um, <laughs> from from H. Right, <laughs> diary, diary. Um, let let's let's give diary a go. Yes, I'm on my way to Locarno. I think. I think that's in there somewhere. I think yes. that's in there somewhere. We went yeah. to Switzerland. Yeah. Right, diary it is. See you in see you in ten fifteen minutes. Friday, 15th of November, Venice, Locarno. Dizzy's alarm went off at 8 and she rose, showered and kissed me bye-bye at 8.30 to catch a flight home to Heathrow. I went back to sleep and rose later to check out of the Michelangelo around 10.30, said fond farewells to the friendly and helpful staff and climbed into the car with John and Steve to drive north for Locarno. The weather was rainy and grey. I slept in the back seat for much of the journey. We arrived in Locarno mid-afternoon and checked into Grand Hotel Locarno. Decayed Splendour. Lovely. I like decayed splendour. My room was as big as a flat. One double, one single bed, sofa, chest of drawers and two French windows onto a balcony overlooking the town. Went out for a mooch about and bumped into Steve R. So we had lunch. Mozzarella and tomato. Bought moccasins for Nile on a market stall and returned to the hotel for a power sleep, Jack's latest concept, in order to be ready for eight o'clock when we're being taken out by Mark Lambelet's wife, Yana. Sweet of her to bother. Mark had sent apologies, but he's promoting a Ray Charles gig tonight elsewhere. Brother Ray, a shame we can't get to that. Went down to the bar where Louise Vase has arrived. No one's really sure why. There's no promo to do. God knows how she gets her expenses past Neil Cox back at EMI. We somehow lose D, or he loses us, on the way out of the hotel and go down the road to an Italian where I have salmon and leave my sweatshirt. I get it back the next day. We then go to a club, Pirate, which is empty but the owner is gracious and stands me a free beer or two. Just as well, because he's charging seven quid for them. Walk home, get lost, eventually find a cab. Cabs are very hard to find here. Sunday, 16th of November. Locarno, Palazzo Fevi. Had a lie-in and rose at one o'clock, opening my curtains to stunning views of the Swiss mountains and Lake Locarno. Wow. Ran into Jack down in reception, who announced he was about to drive up the mountain and have a look. Dee came too and drove while Mark and I enthused until halfway up, when Dee's fear of heights overtook him and he stopped the car and got out. Charitably we abandoned him and carried on up, Mark driving, until we were in snow with Lucano far below. After 20 minutes, the road ended where the snow ploughman had decided it must, with a four-foot wall of snow in which Jack took great pleasure burying the front end of the car. We jumped out, jumped about and took photographs before returning down the mountain, picking Dee up, none the worse for exposure, on the road down. Back at the hotel, presents were arriving in my room, courtesy of the Swiss record label EMI Suisse. 
The word was out that I'd recently become a dad, and Daniela, bless her, had done the honours. The venue was big, 5,000 capacity, and empty, 500 people. But the band were relaxed and I was singing well, so for us the show was a success. Mark, the promoter, however, took a bit of a hammering financially. I heard he lost 15 grand. But he took it well and came out to dinner with us after the show. What a gent. We went on to a club called Alcatraz, which wasn't bad. Didn't stay long. Sunday, 17th of November. Locarno to Vienna. Day off. Up at 10 for a 10.30 departure from the Grand Hotel Locarno and the long drive to Vienna. The road over and under the Swiss Alps was long and winding, but the views were breath-stopping. Up to 18 inches of snow at the side of the road, log cabins, mountain peaks. There were little volcano-shaped cones of snow which peppered the fields. I later realised that they were fir trees. It was a pity we couldn't have stopped the car to take in the view at a more leisurely pace, but we had a ten-hour journey ahead. We stopped briefly in Liechtenstein, and I ran up the road to find the border office so we could get Liechtenstein stamps on our passports. It's one of the world's smallest countries. Sixth smallest, apparently, after the Vatican, Monaco, Nauru, Tuvalu and San Marino. After dark, the journey really seemed interminable, through snow, sleet and rain, and we eventually arrived, somewhat weary and frazzled, at the SAS Palais Hotel Vienna at 9pm, to a warm welcome from the friendliest hotel staff ever. Thank you, Dorena. Thank you, Wolfgang. And given a double magnum of champagne, care of EMI. John Arneson bought us dinner at the hotel. Thank you, hit and run and the monster bottle of champagne was offered round the handful of people in the bar to, amongst others, Deirdre, a ballerina, and her partner Harris, PR director of the Vienna State Opera. I got talking to them via Bella, the bar piano player. After a while, Harris invited me to be his guest at the next performance of the opera on Wednesday. Can't go, of course, we'll be home in England. By way of consolation... Deirdre invited Mark and myself to sit in on the rehearsal of the Nutcracker Ballet the following morning at the State Opera House. Bloody hell, what a privilege. Monday, 18th November. Vienna, Saat Woken by Jack at 11.15, showered and walked across Vienna to the Opera House. Deirdre was as good as her word and had left a pass, along with instructions at the stage door. We took the lift up four floors and walked to the end of the long corridor. I was a little unsettled to discover that this was a rehearsal in a white rehearsal room full of ballerinas and there was nowhere to hide. Mark and I stuck out like, well, two blokes in jeans in a room full of tutus. We were ushered into the room and seated next to the piano player, who, apart from the old genius directing the girls, was the only other man in the room. We sat transfixed and silent as the ballerinas were shuffled into their starting and finishing positions and then witnessed the endearing and rare spectacle of some of the world's best ballet dancers getting it wrong. In order to avoid the 11 separate signatures necessary to officially allow us into the rehearsal, Deirdre had told the director we were her brothers. 
amazing. The rest of the day was spent, after a quick but respectful mooch around St Stephen, being interviewed at the hotel and then off to soundcheck and an early show at 7.30. Initial fears of a slack audience were dispelled by stage time whereupon a respectably large crowd had gathered. They were initially cool in a curious sort of way but the band was on form and for me this was one of the most rewarding shows of the tour so far. By the end of the show, the place was jumping. After the trials and tribulations of Italy, this was a long-awaited reward. Went to dinner with Hans, the MD of EMI here. He'd financed the gig. Tuesday, 19th of November. Vienna, home. Woken by someone knocking on my door in the middle of the night. It turned out to be nine in the morning. So I got up, had breakfast and wrote some postcards. Constantly interrupted by various members of the hotel staff thanking me for last night's show and generally being sweet. Given cake, signed, guest book. Cost me a fortune to check out, but never mind. Had a funny turn on the aeroplane home, broke a sweat and turned green. Arrived in Heathrow, clutching sick bag, but escaped unscathed and unsoiled. Phew. Got home, went to bed, and came down an hour later feeling much better, and went to the chip shop. Up half the night with insomnia, and awake the other half with children. Ugh. Wednesday, 20th of November, home. Staggered out of bed at 8.45 to take Fifi to school. When she finished at 12, we went to Windsor, to Old MacDonald's, for a burger and a bit of shopping. Hung about till four o'clock, coffee at the dome, etc. Thursday, 21st of November. Caught up with a bit of paperwork and took the CD Walkman to the Sonny Service Centre in Staines. Diz and the family were at Donner's for a couple of hours. Friday, 22nd of November. Spent all morning waiting for the rug in the back room to be returned from the cleaners. Went to Kingston with the family to get the answering machine repaired and the phone swapped. Had coffee in the cafe at Next and drove home. Saturday, 23rd of November, up at 7.30 with Hargreaves and Crompton, fed little Niall and changed him. He peed on the sofa and then threw up all over himself while I was attending to the aforementioned. Didn't seem to bother him much. Dizzy got up at 8.30 and took Fee to Bally, along with her friend Julie from round the corner. Spent most of the day feeling a bit strange and depressed. I think I'm going down with something. Went to the laundrette in Egham to dry some clothes. Our washer isn't tumble drying. Went to bed in the afternoon from 2 till 4. Took Fee to the park on the green around 4.30. It was already dark. Had tea, watched telly. Went to bed. Videoed Woody Allen's Bananas. Sunday, 24th of November. Up at 8 with Hargreaves. Drank coffee and watched TV until 10-ish. When Diz got up, I went back to bed till around 12. Got up and went to the pub with everybody. Had steak and kidney pie and chips and a tonic water. Came home. Sophie went to Bessie's next door for a couple of hours and I went to bed again. Got up at 4.30 and festered around. All I seem to do is sleep at the moment. 
At one point during the early afternoon, I started work on a list of possible names for our studio to be. Shown here on page 12. Should I find them and read them out? It's tempting, isn't it? Page 12, page 12. So it is. Possible lists of names for our studio. Near Miss Studios. Millionaire Studios. Terrible Room Studios. No Room Studios. The Hiss Factory. Sound Practice. Quite like that one. Sound Practice. Tight Bottom. Toy Box. Mixomatosis. Special Projects. And last but not least, The Racket Club. Monday, 25th of November. That happens to be Rothery's birthday, but I don't think I mention it here. Up at eight with Hargreaves. Got us both dressed and took her to school. Came home, had a bath, drank coffee and made a compilation tape for the car to replace the ones I lost in Brussels. Drove to Aylesbury to meet the band, crew and John Arneson at what looks set to become The Racket Club, i.e. our storage, rehearsal and recording facility. At the moment, it's a large room made of breeze blocks on a small industrial estate in a field. The metamorphosis to some kind of useful sound facility begins in earnest during December. I seem to be the only member of the band who's less than enthusiastic. I feel I may well end up alienated by the distance between it and home, which is about 50 miles. Got home around 4.15 to discover the washer fixed. Hooray! Watched telly, cuddled Crompton, serviced the vacuum cleaner, etc. Went to bed. Tuesday, 26th of November. Up around nine. Fifi and Dizzy were out during the morning at play school and pottery, respectively. I spent all morning trying to iron my white silk shirt. Niall kept going berserk. He's not happy unless he's being cuddled. Just like his dad, really. When the girls got back... I still hadn't finished my ironing and eventually abandoned the project. In the afternoon I went to the local hairdressers to get blackened and then drove to Rondor to have a pint or two with Stuart Hornell and John Arneson. Much hot air and cold beer until around 10. Wednesday, 27th November. Home, Munich. Got up with Hargreaves at 7.30, packed a bag, Dizzy got up with Niall at 8 and a car came for me at 8.30. Off to Terminal 2 for a day in Munich. Fog at Heathrow meant we were delayed and still on the tarmac at 12.15. Arrived in Munich and went straight to the TV studio for first rehearsal at 3. The day was spent sitting about, unable to go to the hotel which was too far away, killing time between rehearsals which were two hours apart and there were three of them. I sent Chris, our driver, off in search of a German monopoly and drank hundreds of cups of coffee. Met Bonnie Tyler, who was also on the bill. She seemed like a nice girl and hasn't aged noticeably since, when was it, 1980? Finally got the show out of the way, I don't like TV playbacks, and drove back to the Hilton to check in. Burnt from EMI, took us to a vibey Mexican restaurant nearby where I got talking to Willie Bogner and his Brazilian wife, Sonia. 
Willie is a big star in Germany. He's a stunt skier and did all the James Bond movies. He's got his own fashion label, sort of stylish sportswear, simply called Bogner. Hilarious, of course, if you're British, but I didn't tell him. They were lovely people and I talked to them for so long that when I got back to the table, I'd missed the meal. Wasn't really hungry anyway. Sonia used to go out with Mickey Finn, the other half of T-Rex, who is now no more. I was surprised to hear of his death. It didn't seem very long since I was talking to him on the set of the TV show The Tube back in 1984. He seemed fit and healthy then. Went back to the hotel for a quick drink in the bar and off to bed. And we're back. Um, and that was a bit of a mixed bag of diary, that, because there's a bit of time at home and a bit of time in Germany and a bit of time in Switzerland and, you know, all all, all holidays and Eden time frame, so which is good. Um, which actually reminded me, I forgot to ask you something from last week uh, that, again, was another one of your throwaway lines. But you mentioned there was a gig you were at, I think it was one of the Italian gigs, where there'd been a load of hubbub going on with promoters and, and what have you. And, uh, and and you then have this line of, uh, and there was a TV crew floating around, and um, and I was late coming in for Splintering Heart. Yeah, typical of that would happen while it was being televised. So there's nothing more likely to jinx anything than a TV crew. And the more, the more important the TV crew, the more likely it is to be jinxed. But... Um, yeah, the, the, I, I must have missed the the, the way that um, Chris Neal um, arranged Splintering Heart when we when we actually made the Holidays in Eden album. He created this big loop. This him and him and Mark Kelly between them created this loop. And when we came to play it live, um, we used a recording of the loop. That we didn't actually play play the synth loop because it couldn't really be recreated. So we extended it, and we still to this day will do that. And there's a really long loop that slowly builds up and slowly builds up and slowly builds up at the beginning of the show when we put Splinter and Heart at the beginning of the show. And um, at some point, a kick drum is added to it, and it goes go 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 go. And that's my cue to come in. And I have to sing in the right place or it all goes to shit. So um, occasionally, uh, during the important occasions, I've tended to come in in the wrong place for whatever reason. And I think that was one of them. But it reminds me of a time in Philadelphia. Um, True story. I was standing at the side of the stage. We were opening... Or we may have been encoring, I can't remember, with, with uh, Splinter and Heart. So I'm at the side of the stage in the long black coat, feeling all spooky, trying to get into the mood. Um, and I'm waiting for the kick drums because I've got eight of them and then I have to sing. So I have to count them. Go, go, one, dun, dun, go, go, two. So I have to count to eight and then I, I have to time my walk to the centre mic so I arrive in time to sing and everything. Um, so I'm stood at the side of stage in Philadelphia. There wasn't a lot of security at the gig in the long black coat and I hear the kick drum come in and I go, one, go, go, two. And I get to two and someone taps me on the shoulder 
and says, Hello, Steve. We'd like to present you with this cake. And he's holding a cake. And I, and I said, Well, it's not a good time, mate. Um, so I'm trying to I'm trying to fend this bloke off with a big cake whilst hanging on hanging on to these kick drums and of course I lost count of them. So then I come in in completely the wrong time and everything goes to hell. And I've never really got over it to the point where whenever we play Splinter and Heart now and I hear those kick drums in come in I just think of this guy with the cake and I can't get it out of my head and it, and I, and it always makes me chuckle. Um, and occasionally, you know, I, I laugh so much that I lose count of the kick drums again and bugger <laughs> it up all over again. Because that's not how that song originally started, is it? I remember seeing you, first time I saw you, Seasons Greetings Tour, in between the mm. two albums, Seasons End and, and Holidays, and you played three new songs off the album, I think. Uh, you played This Town and you played that, and it didn't start that way. There was a weird kind of guitar-y thing going on that started it and then there was a, a drum fill and then it all kind of kicked in yeah splinter and heart was conceived as a guitar song really with this thing um and it was i don't know it was more like what was it like i don't know it reminded me of the cure a bit back, back then right? it, was, it was sort of much more manic and a lot heavier and when Chris Neal got hold of it, he sort of he had this he had this suggestion to start it as a much more synth-driven thing, and, and with the with the screaming echoing in the background and everything, which was actually him screaming, um, and so it completely changed. But I think it changed for the better. I, I love the darkness in the intro loop, and I and I love that not as much as this moment where the band kicks in and it becomes a rock and roll band from that moment. And I thought that was a good, you know, the, uh, there's that scene in uh, what's that? What's that film? Um, it was one of those Terry Gilliam films where the horse comes through the wardrobe. You know, you know the little boys sleeping in bed, and that night, that night in full gallop on a horse, just smashes straight out of the wardrobe. And I, and I always think of those big moments as, as like a, the horse through the wardrobe door moments, and that's one of them. For anyone who hasn't seen that film, you probably think I've lost it. But there is a there is a moment in a Terry Gilliam film where a knight in in armor at full gallop on a horse blasts straight through this little boy's wardrobe doors from the inside into his bedroom, you know, like, which is the kind of dreams you have when you're a kid, aren't they? But this, this was for real. Can't remember the name of the film. That doesn't sound deeply traumatic at all. I, I, I haven't seen that. I'm now going to search that out in a kind of perverse it, it kind of way. It might be Time Bandits. It might be Time Bandits. Yeah, yeah. Can't remember. I have to say, my favourite Gilliam moments in The Fishy King where they're, all the people are walking through Grand Central Station and then they stop and they all dance, they all waltz through. There's this moment where they're all walking through, getting on with their lives, and then for whatever reason, everybody stops and starts waltzing. Yeah, lovely. As they, and and it's a mad moment, but absolutely fantastic. But there we are. That's how um, the world should be. You're right, actually, how the world should be. Um, the other thing, obviously, uh, coming back to the diary, uh, not really a throwaway line, but I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to mention it. Bonnie Tyler. Oh yeah, old, old, old Bonnie. Shouldn't say old Bonnie. Bonnie. 
You've um, just asked me about that a minute ago. Yeah, but we weren't recording. Oh, were we not? No. No, that's, <laughs> that, that's how these things work. Um, um, Do that again, then. <laughs> uh, well, no, I can't know, because then I would have asked you before. Um, just give Funny us a moment, no, folks. Never just give us a moment. <laughs> no, no, no. Excellent. Well, well, that, well that, that wraps that one. <laughs> that wraps that one to bits. So... <laughs> You were being you were being complimentary. You you said yeah. she she looked rather splendid. Well, I don't remember. Yeah, splendid, we but. we've done we've done a few we've done a couple of gigs with Bonnie Tyler over the years. In fact, she's got a guitar player called Matt, who's a big mate of Rothers, uh, and only lives down the road, I think. Um and it was Bonnie Tyler's band that, that we were on the plane with when when and the inaugural flight of Latvian Airways when we were all asked to go to the back of the plane so it could take off. <laughs> Have I told you that story? Yeah, you, you, now, you've oh definitely told me God. that story. I don't right. know if you've told everybody else. You've <laughs> definitely told me flyers. that yeah. We all had to sit at the back, and we were all absolutely convinced it was never going to leave the ground. Uh, that was Bonnie Tyler's band. But the, the, this, I think the occasion in the diary uh, was just a, a TV show we did together in, in Munich, I think. And I do remember sitting next to her in, uh, in makeup while people... Um, Oh, this is a good opportunity to lift the brush. Yes, actually. Yes, uh, yeah. I was being powdered down. Yes, with um, that blush that that brush that you say is not for blusher, but so clearly is. <laughs> uh, um, I'm going to record one of these one week and just let this footage <laughs> slip out. Absolutely slip out. I was being powdered down in makeup, and and Bonnie was at the next chair, and we, you know, we just had a bit of a chat. She's ever so nice. And, and um, she's um, she's looking very good for a, a lady of of her years. She's obviously had a much better life than me. Okay. Well, the the great thing about that is that if Bonnie is actually listening, I don't think there's anything we'll have to apologise for in a later episode. So no. Uh, so that's all. That's all going to be fine. Makes a uh, change. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it won't be the last time. Do we do we want to tell everybody about our little our little idea for for couch convention weekend should we finish and tell yes. people that let's do that yeah we? we've got as as you may or may not know in september we're going marillion are going to do a, a couch convention weekend uh which is all going to be a bit daft and um, and we're going to encourage all the fans to uh to watch live concert dvds which will which we will provide free through uh, through the space streaming platform, uh, which you can find via Marillion dot com, um, and the idea is just to have a um, a Marillion weekend without going out, and so uh, you know stock stock the um, stock the bar, um, you know dress up if you if if you're in the mood to dress up. Um, and uh, you know, let's uh, blow some of those things that go do do do, and and be at a gig together. And the band are going to get involved, of course, in um, in any way, shape, or form. I think we we're, we're, we're going to be on hand to uh, to pop up on the screen and do and do uh, co- contribute to the quizzes and whatnot. But in addition to that. I thought it might be cool, or we both thought, Ant and I thought it would be, be, be cool, to do a live podcast as part of that weekend, a part of the Couch Convention weekend. So we'll do a little video one. 
We won't be just audio, will it? Will we? No, will we be we'll on screen? We, I think we'll do video as well. We I should. We'll we should video. be out, provided we can make that happen with the tech. We'll, well actually yeah, do. We'll, we'll make we, I, I might. You, I might. I might take a foray down the motorway and come and see you. And might do it. Might do it in the same room because that'll resolve a lot of the tech issues. Though not if you're going to do that with that brush. Well, everybody can. I was just thinking everyone could, could witness the blush of brush firsthand. Wouldn't that be exciting for them all? <laughs> We're going to have to have every prop that we've ever mentioned. You're going to have to have a tinkly bell. Yes. By then. Yes, I, must, I, must, I must get that together for the offensive language warning. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's that as well, actually. Yeah, I've forgotten about that. We're um, going to need but... some other or, or audible device that we sound off before I, I slag off anyone unfairly as well. <laughs> Like a gong. Alarm, num- alarm number two. <laughs> Huge gong in the background. Uh, <laughs> that Doris can come and beat if she thinks that we're we're yeah, slandering anybody. Um, yeah, so that, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be quite. That's going to be quite cool. Yes, so am I. That'll, that'll be brilliant. Yeah, and cool. it it might it might introduce the vibe of this podcast to to people who otherwise might might not yet have got onto it. So it might be like the BBC appearance. Numbers might actually go down. After yes. <laughs> after we're, the top after of the pops. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, we, we'll call it a day there. Um, and, and thank you very much for listening to Chapter 12 and, and, and sticking with us. Because uh, we know it's a big commitment um, to, to sit through this drivel every every week. So so thank you for, for doing that. Um, yeah. And, and thanks for all the messages because, you know, there's a lot of love coming in from uh, from ever from everybody out there you know there's barely a day goes by i don't get a couple of emails from people saying how much they're enjoying it and what a how it's lightened lightened their mood at this you know pretty shitty time we're all yeah. we're all going through and i think we're enjoying it as well aren't we we're having quite a good time immensely yeah yeah we've got a routine going now we're fairly organized now we, not, we do this i'm thing. not that good an actor <laughs> <laughs> and on that on that note uh, I guess we'll leave it for this week uh, we'll, we'll talk to you all again next week bye bye crazy kids if you're driving home stay at home don't know how that works I'm being <laughs> honest <laughs> oh god Thank you, Tim Gibson, Tim Hillman, Heikus Bledstasser, and Carl Larson, Paul Eagles, and Cliff Lewis. Thank you, John Atterwell, Derek Ireland, Dewey Evans. Jerry Geet or Goot or Guide Mark Mike Gusway Rick Dial and Corey McKinnon Not to mention Ramona Pucci Thank you, Justin Beanie and James Fulton and Nathan Vines. 
Robert Weavers and Philip Harps, Dave Colopy that rhymes with Scolopy, and Gary Kirich and Nathaniel Parton and Lance Dawkins, Jordan Strain and Mike Hudson. Time and sun Time and sunny, oh sorry, time and Judith DeYoung Paul Emily Ryan and Carola Andy Howard, Mark Hughes, and thank you, John Bands. How you doing, John? Should we go up a cemetery? Here it comes. Adam Dalby, Mitchie Carl, John Sanders, John Stern, Kasia Polowski, or Kasia Polowski, Eric Polowski. Harold Wagenobich Starting to sound really stern and doomy now, isn't it? Light that up Well, thank you Pamela Inglis Jonathan Riley Robert Paraiso Jonathan Riley, my arse Jonathan Risby Barb Senecal Wendy Evans and John Merrick Thank you John Merrick Thank you John Merrick and Matthew Ravel and Matt Horan
Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.